I don't want to go too lightly to hope, but I think we have stood for a while in anxiety. Um, I think it's in the room. Um, we bring it into rooms with us these days. You have spoken it quite powerfully into this room, and I thank you for that. Um, like you, I come from a place where we are positive all of the time. We try to be cheerful and positive and happy um, because the world is so hard, right? And we are something else. Um, so I, I, I appreciate that you've raised some, some things that are hard um, and that we, we have stood in that space. And I, I also know in my context, we don't raise things that are hard that we cannot resolve. We tend not to raise things outside of our scope. Um, the problem is in the church, very little is within our scope. So it means that we don't talk about a lot of things. So thank you for that. And then I was also reminded um, during the break that I, I have an unusual theological formation for an Anglican priest. I went to Union Theological Seminary in New York. I'm very proud of it. It's a very complicated place. Um, and I, I only went because I was on my way to our Anglican seminary, the Episcopal Seminary, which is called the General Theological Seminary of the Episcopal Church. We call it General for short. But I was staying with some friends who were students at Columbia University, which is where Union is. And I walked by the big flags outside of Union and thought, that's Union Theological Seminary. I've, I've heard of this. Um, and I went in just to look at it, um, kind of in awe, it's way above my scope of what I plan to do with my life. I was going to be an Episcopal priest in a little parish somewhere in Los Angeles, happily, for the rest of my life. Um, I was really lucky maybe in a, in a city, an inner city, probably in the suburbs. But I walked into Union with a Muslim and Hindu friend, because I'm an Indian and that's how it goes, um, and a man who had the Holocaust um, tattoo on his arm, an old, old man, looked at me, he was like this tall, and said, we're closed. <laughs> I apologize, I didn't know seminaries closed, and I'm not from New York, I don't know how urban buildings work, like London is the same, you can't just go barging in. So I apologize, um, and I stood for a minute confused, I had never actually seen that tattoo on anyone before. Um, and I was standing at Union Theological Seminary, a storied, historic place. Um, Bonhoeffer had gone to Union, right, and came to Union during the war. Cohn was at Union, Williams was at Union, Harrison was at Union, Tillich was at Union, Niebuhr was at Union, right, all of my heroes. And I can go down another list of people that wrote books that were students at Union. So I stood there dazed, looking a little bit out the window at the cherry blossoms around him, and out of compassion or something, because I would have left and gone to general, and then gone to general probably had been happy. Um, he looked at me and said, but we open tomorrow at nine. The admissions office will be open at nine. You should come and meet them. He didn't know I was a student. He didn't know why I was standing there. Um, he had no reason to say any of that. He could have just said, oh, you know, the subway is this way. So I came, I went back the next morning at nine. I don't know why, because it wasn't on the list of places I was allowed to go. But I say all that to say I went back, and by the end of the day, I was going to Union, no matter what it took. I was going to go to Union. Um, but it gave me a theological formation that said, we have to look at how power affects groups of people. We have to. We cannot be Christians and not think about how sin is active in the world. 
that it crushes human bodies as well as human spirits. And that is the work of Christ, is to restore human bodies and human spirits to make this planet worthy, as our presenting bishop would say, of God's imagination, right? To the dream of God. Now, it shouldn't mean that we make ourselves nuts trying to build the impossible, but it should mean that we proclaim a redeeming word of God for the entire society, for what that justice might look like um, from the church, that we commit ourselves to it, we commit our lives to it. So I was told when I went to Union that the problem is going to be you will have a very idealistic perspective on what's possible in the world, what theology can do, what God can do, which I still find a nutty thing to say to, an, to someone who wants to be ordained, what God can do, right? What can God not do, right? Um, and the church is actually concerned with smaller things. We have to survive, right? We have to have enough money. We have to keep enough people happy that there are enough people in the building that our building isn't closed. You know, almost everyone's roof is leaking, you know? And the places that aren't, I was told, can't be bothered with what you're talking about, right? With this message. What a scathing indictment on the church. And these were from beloved, thoughtful, pretty open-minded leaders worried about our careers, what we would do for the rest of our lives. Um, Clearly, maybe in a good way, not concerned about the gospel in the future, like confident that the gospel would persist despite our failure to proclaim it, right? Um, But worried about taking care of us, um, which is how they understood their role. So I'm aware that my perspective is different, right? That I come from a slightly different perspective, Um, But I think it's a biblical one. I think it's a Christian one. I think it's one with an illustrious heritage. And again, one in the 1990s, when I was in school, might have felt like it was fading because it should fade. We were in a better place. We had had the civil rights movement. Nazis were finished a long time ago, we thought, right? We were moving into a more liberal and open place. We were getting better on sexuality and gender. We were opening our minds and our hearts and our families and our communities. I really wish that had been true, that my education was irrelevant. And I was standing here wishing I knew more about how to fix roofs and plumbing and keep diverse communities together. What I find instead is that the world feels terrorized around us and those evils that we were taught about that sounded historic when I was in school are the evils confronting us today. There has been knife crime in this land before, right? That's a period that existed before. We haven't had gun violence in the way we have it in the U.S. before, but it was predictable. As we saw the law changing, it was absolutely predictable. As our presiding bishop said when he was here yes, yesterday, is it that day before yesterday? Yeah, it's the day before yesterday. He told the story of Charlottesville. I went to Charlottesville. I went to Charlottesville because in June of that year, a friend who is a colleague, an old friend, said we will, um, the neo-Nazis are coming to march in Charlottesville. They have proclaimed that they will come to our town. It's during the summer break. Students won't be here, faculty won't be here, clergy won't be here. We're asking some of you to come join us. And it was just personal emails. It wasn't a big blast, Um, very private. Basically, we're terrified, we're alone, they're coming. And the little email I got had a 
kind of a, a small group of people and one person who I knew was on vacation during that week, one person who really should take their vacation, um, and others I just knew wouldn't do this. This isn't what they do. And I thought, I work at Trinity Church on Wall Street. There are nine of us. There are lots of priests. I could actually get away. Maybe one of the few good things about where I get to work that I can feel really good about is I could leave. And then I thought, to be really honest with you, there is nothing more terrifying to me than standing up to a neo-Nazi. I mean, that's not subtle. That's not that we disagree about the state of the climate, frankly, you know? It's not that, um, it's, it's not small. That's someone who thinks I shouldn't exist in the part of the planet I live on, that thinks I should be dead or gone, right? And thinks that of my family, and thinks that of people that we love, and that are much more vulnerable than I am. And I actually thought, I've, I've never been afraid in this way before. I don't come from fearful people. I was not raised to be afraid. I went to Union, after all, right? I, I know a good fight. But I thought, I'm actually scared of having to face that kind of anger and hate face to face. And then I thought, because I read too, it's not my responsibility. There are plenty of people who can take this on. There are plenty of white people that should take this on. Most of my church are white people and white clergy. They'll do it. They're great. I don't need to do this. So I went. <laughs> I still couldn't tell you how I decided I was going to go, but I went. Um, and and, I, I, and I, I hoped not many people would I wrote back to her. I had to write back to you and said, I actually know they're on vacation. Let them go on vacation. They're exhausted. I know why they, these people can't do it. I'll come. I promise I'll come. Let me know what you need, um, and if you need any help. And I was terrified. And I hoped it would be small. In June, no one had heard of it. Um, I had just committed this weekend in August that I would be there. I put up my calendar, bought the tickets. Of course, as we get into August, it's clear that it's not going to be small. Um, people were told to stay out of Charlottesville, which is the, you know, it's the home of the University of Virginia. It's Jefferson's University, home of sort of an American enlightenment in a very particular way in a slave state. Right? It's this really fraught identity. And, and, and Virginia was an Anglican colony. Right? Virginia is Victoria is Virginia. Right? Um, so, so we knew it was problematic. I knew I was going. I told my church told my boss, my actual boss, I didn't tell the presiding bishop, um, and I told some of his colleagues. Um, so we knew who was going and who wasn't, and we knew there was a lot of fear in Charlottesville, and we worried that we were contributing to the problem. If more, more of us came, maybe it wouldn't be that big a deal. If none of us went, maybe there wouldn't be that many people marching as neo-Nazis, because that's not our problem in our country, right? So sitting in the airport, in LaGuardia at New York, in New York City, in my home. And I was sitting, watching all these men, and we, we had not done this before, so I had not seen this before. Watching these men, young men, in khaki pants, which is what my son wears, right, and polo shirts, and button-down kind of dress shirts, <clears throat> short hair, like kind of the uniform of a clean-cut American, which was a neutral uniform, and in, in my mind still is. It's what our school kids look like. And it took me a bit. First I thought, I literally thought, and I apologize if this is problematic, but I'm going to say it. I literally thought, it looks like a lot of gay men that are hooking up, of meeting. <laughs> because they clearly didn't know each other, right? But we're finding each other, and then we're talking, we're really excited to see each other. So first I thought, maybe there's a meeting or a conference. 
because it looked like a lot of gay men. Then I thought, oh right, actually, this is them. They're coming from New York. Maybe because they had come from another airport, but they're gathering in New York. And I put my head down. I'm 47 years old, right? So I was in my, this was a couple of years ago, I was in my 40s, in my own town, and I felt myself put my head down to not have to look at it. And we were all, I mean, they were looking around at all of us as well, looking for their people. Clearly I was not one of their people, but they were literally meeting up. I overheard one say to a young man who was white and the young woman that was with him and some people, um, are you coming to Charlottesville? And he said, yes. So the difference was he was with some women as well. It's the only difference, but kind of the same uniform. It's the American guy uniform. He said, well, you'll, you'll, you're coming to March. And the guy figured out, he didn't know what it was. He said, no, we're going to a wedding. And he said, oh, well, you should come March, and handed him something on paper, and he handed it right back and backed up. Right? So I'm watching this out of the corner of my eye and thinking, right, right, the world is not all terrifying, and I'm about to get on a plane with a bunch of neo-Nazis. Seems like not the smartest thing I've ever done in my life. Like, maybe I should just go home. I don't know what to do. And I look across at a black woman sitting across from me, realizing she's doing exactly what I'm doing. Had a computer open, had her head down, could hear everything I was hearing. And it occurred to me that I just needed to put my head up, that I'm old enough to be the parent of most of these young men, and how dare they take our city from us? How dare that they, they take any of this from us? So I closed my computer and put my head up and waited in that mother way that only mothers know how to do <laughs> for eye contact with one of these children. It was interesting. I did it, and everyone that looked at me put their head down as soon as they saw me. It's a mom thing. I don't exactly know how it works, but I know it works. And, I, and I, the other woman, I mean, she put headphones on, she was, and it made sense. It's exactly how my body felt. She just sunk into herself. Um, she just had to get where she was going, right? Poor thing. Um, and for me, it took a moment of realizing that I wanted to protect her. I wanted her to feel something different than I was feeling. Is what made me put my head up um, in that space. That entire flight down was one of the most terrifying things I've ever done. I, anxious is not a big enough word. As we were sitting on that plane, I could hear, of course, I'm sitting next to many of them. Of course, they're talking to each other about how important this gathering is, taking their country back is, what, and all the rhetoric I had only heard in theory or on the news, there they are, talking to each other, and you would think they were a Christian organization with leaflets, as you were describing, trying to convince the people sitting around them that this was their responsibility. Loud, they weren't ashamed. I was watching the people that worked on the airplane trying to figure out what they were, what are you even allowed to do? Almost all people of color. What can you say when these are your customers? It's a version of America, and I'm from Dallas, Texas. I didn't know existed. I'm not convinced did exist in this way in public until very, very recently. So I say it with, with some sympathy for what you all are living through as well. Shocking things, right? Right below the surface. I'm not a complete fool. I know right below the surface. But we did at least used to aspire to something differently in our common life, right? So the story I've been using around this um, is an image for me that is... I used to tell the stories, there's many of them, of the Red Sea. I tell them less now because I can't 
it's harder to imagine that we're on our way to freedom, frankly. It used to feel like that. You know, and you could tell that in different kinds of gatherings, that we're getting there, we're on our way, and we're struggling. It's a harder story to tell today, because I don't know that many of us feel like we're on our way. We feel like, I think many of us, if there was a version of the story where you got pulled back a little bit, right, that might be more accurate to what today feels like, that we're, we're back here, and we're in a different place, in a different landscape, and the old solutions aren't the ones. We have some new thinking to do, right? We have some creative, local thinking to do. We have some systems to change. We have some policies to change and administer. But we have some very creative thinking to do for what a diverse North America, a diverse UK, right, a post-colonial world could look like. And I think it will take our best imaginations to proclaim that. Because at least where I come from, that's not going to come from our government. There's no way. No one believes that. No one expects that. You all might have a better track history of significant change coming from the top, but we really don't. The only way we have it is if we cast a vision boldly at the grassroots and work together to make change. And it has to change systemically across the board, but for us it has to start with people gathered imagining something different. And the only time we ever do that is in times of crisis like this, is my proposition. We don't do this when we're okay. We don't do it when we think we can imagine just a little bit of reform will get us there. We don't, even though there are people calling us to it. We don't because we value friendship and community and unity. Is it worth the disruption for just a little better? Is it worth the disrupt disruption if it doesn't really affect me. Right? And I think we're all, we are all um, guilty in that space. How much discomfort can we live with? Right? Do you take it on yourself? Are you that person that always raises the hard thing? Even that person gets tired. I'm that person, right? You get tired of it. I have some very pretty stories that I could tell you as well. I like those. But in a moment like this, and it'll probably get worse before it gets better, we know we have to imagine something different. And my argument is, only in moments like this do we have the creativity to actually do it. In this time when we are, as Nadia says, right at the edge of this anxiety, it feels like we're about to step off into deep despair. And some of us have, right? She says, right there, you are so close to this thing we call hope. Not a light hope, not a delusional hope, but in a place of crisis that can create hope. So Cornell West and others will say, hope is not optimism, it's not lightheartedness, it's not distraction like we do with our kids, right? It's not just changing the subject. It's mining, and I, have, I need to find a non-extractive word for this, but it's kind of digging into the depths of our history and our heritage, remembering who we can be, and from that truth, imagining something different and better for the future. Building a future based on the truth of who, who we have been. So I'm going to ask you all to talk about that in a second with each other. Um, actually, let's do that. Yeah, let me tell you a story first and then you can talk about it. Um, so I am from India. My parents are from Kerala, which is in the southwest of India. Um, our joke is that we are like the Hawaii of India. Um, because we have tropical rainforest and we have beaches. And that's pretty much the whole state. It's a little slice. 
um, with no humility at all. At all. Um, we have called ourselves God's own country over the years. We are not a people known for our humility in Kerala. Um, and it's our, now our tourist logo. Like if you come to visit, it's on everything. It's a little, it's a kind of embarrassing. Um, but it's, it's a beautiful landscape. And as you know, that kind of landscape creates a pretty gentle society, frankly. We're pretty laid back. There's a beach. There's fruit falling off of trees. Fruit, food grows well. It's an easy place to live in a lot of ways. So um, when we dig a well, historically, you just go straight down, and you don't have to go very far down. The water levels are high. Um, it's also called the, the Venice of India, which um, it's kind of gross right now. Venice is kind of gross, right, and it's sinking. Um, but we have canals that go all the way up um, from the river, from the, the sea, from the Arabian Sea, up into the mountains. And then we have water coming down from the mountains, and so there's brackish water, and we historically bring rice down to the trading ports on boats. We traveled by boats historically. So it's a very pretty place. There's water everywhere. It, they, they say it's a kind of place that would say in a time of monsoon in the old days, the fish would just leap out of the, you know, out of the ponds or out of the canals, right onto your plate or onto the fire, like sacrificing themselves. And they were so fat, you didn't need oil. And so we're full of this, the abundance of the earth in this place. And now because of extraction, um, extraction done for soft drink companies and to build houses and all the usual stuff, um, you can't get to water in Kerala, which is shocking. We have the water in our canals is polluted, um, and there are beautiful stories of people manually cleaning them, but um, this place that is literally, you know, was, was a simple place to live, right? Has, the basic resources of the land are beginning to be deprived, and it's harder and harder to get water out of the ground. Now in the rest of India, that's actually always a problem, right, to have water year-round. Um, monsoons come and they're torrential. Between monsoons, um, the land dries out so it can't absorb the water. Um, water is a problem. And one of the ways we know that historically is that you find wells, especially in the central part of India, which is very, very dry. There are deserts in that part, and cities. Um, and now in places that have become built out of cities that used to be very isolated, you will find um, wells that when they're full of water look like a pond, you know, like a wide but small pond or something like that, like a water feature. But when the when it gets drier and drier um, and they lower a little bit, um, and it could be a spring, you can't really tell, but they're wells, um, you can see the steps to go down, right? So they could be the size of this room. And as the, so it, when the water's high, you could take a bucket, you can play in it, you can swim in it. So it goes down, um, you walk downstairs around the perimeter, as you can imagine, to reach the water. So some of these, I'm sure you've seen pictures of these, right, are just stunning things. Um, because the water level has gotten quite low at certain times, or because they were built intentionally, usually by a, a royal family or something, as a, 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 a heritage piece. Um, but if you think about how they work, you can't really carve or get down there unless the water level is low, right? It would have to be a dry time. So usually when you start out, what you see is you see some steps, and there's some steps here. And the ones I've seen um, in person, they're enormous like this, and you can see trees growing up the side of them because they're cut into the earth. Beautiful, right? They're the roots of the tree and, and coming up. And it's a narrow ledge of stairs that go down, and you can imagine exactly how they were built, right? The water level drops again. You build another set of stairs, a couple of steps. 
a kind of these shallow things, the kind of thing where you can see children running up and down with ease, but we all get vertigo going down even two or three of these. There's no railing, there's no security, right against the wall of the thing, and they go all the way down. Sometimes you, it's a hundred feet to the bottom. And the one I've seen the most often, it's on a, a site in Bangalore that's a retreat center, and I've never, there's not water there ever. There just isn't water in that community in that way anymore. It's the only sign they have that there was water once, right? That, 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 that people took enough time to build this thing, and it was worth it. It is a sign that once we had water. It's also a sign of how the water levels have dropped over the years as you get down to the bottom and how low they went, and there's nothing in them. In the parts of India where these are most storied and people are building over them, it looks like temples. I mean, you, you can't tell what's happening in the landscape because the grass is up here, right? The, 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 the earth, the part of the earth we walk on is up here. But the picture is of stairs. It's like, it's like an Escher image, right? Of stairs beautifully carved and rooms and statues and curlicues and flowers and little rooms where you could go in and bathe um, because you were down that low by the water. And often the most beauty is at the very, very bottom, which is rarely exposed because rarely is there that little water, right? It takes forever to get to that level. And people will say that for generations, you never saw past this level. But in the current state of things, climate change, how development is happening in India, how rural landscapes are being destroyed in India, how cities are being built, right? The, the struggle of local farmers um, to, in cutting down trees for fire because they can't survive where they are, the water's gone, just gone. But shockingly, what it exposes is that we've been here before. We've actually been to this level before. We have been empty before. And the image we have is that our people stop to mark for us that we're here. Left a reminder, a stunning, stunning reminder that we were here, and we were here for long enough to create space and to create rooms and definition and stairs and a pathway out, but a sign for you that we have been here before. So my question for you, and I want to give you some time, I'm going to ask you to pair up with somebody, um, and like take like 10 or 15 minutes, like take some time. Um, it, I've not ever done this in a group like this, right? I know you all, I, I'm hard to hear and my accent is different and you're a mixed group, so I don't, there's some parts that are, you know, I don't know who all of you are. Um, I've usually done this in groups I know well. Um, when we talk about heritage and history and our resource, I usually know in the room what you know. I don't know what you know. I know the negative of our histories, some of it, I know we all know those, but I don't actually believe there's any history, right? Any history of any group of people that is not also informed by justice and equality and resilience and solidarity and strength. I know that's true. I know that's true for people. People have, have it, right? Communities have it. So you can think about this very locally, your neighborhood or your church, or you can think about it in a broader sense of identity that you might have, however you want, or as a Christian, totally up to you. But I invite you to have a conversation if you were standing at the bottom of that well, if that is in the place that you come from, however you want to define that, it's up to you how you want to define that. What are the resources of your community 
for this moment? What are your stories or your images? What's down there in this place that you might draw up for a time like this? So thank you, and I, I think, I'm sure you heard it. You, um, you all talked about rebuilding communities, and that is actually the primary challenge where I am, is that narratives and other things are destroying our communities. And you've talked about very concrete ways to rebuild, very specific and concrete ways to rebuild relationship and community. So thank you.